Dear Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for a room that is prepared and ready to hear your word with seats that are filled with people, Father, who have given of their time and their attention tonight for matters that are eternally important, things you have recorded here in your word for those you love so that we would come and sit at your feet and learn the things that matter. Lord, I thank you for that privilege. I thank you for the reminder in a night like this that we come because of eternal reasons for life, for resurrection, for things, Father, this world can't offer. And we also know, Lord, the enemy is often at work in our lives, giving us good reason why things like this are not important or why they have to take a, a back seat to things the world insists must be our first priority. And, Father, sometimes when that happens, it happens for good reason, but we also acknowledge, Lord, in many cases it happens when there is no good reason. We pray, Father, that you would always be working in our hearts through the Spirit, speaking to us in every day of our week, reminding us, Father, that, that we must concern ourselves with what follows the time we have here, even as we are concerning ourselves with what we have now, so that we'll be prepared for what follows, so that we'll have a mind that, that seeks to please you while the time is still today. I thank you, Father, for the reminder. Let our understanding of Lazarus and of what your son did and Raising him from the dead, remind us of what he did for each of us in the same manner and will do one day so that it will not be a story of distant things, but of our own life. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Where we find ourselves in chapter 10, verse 40, is at the end of Jesus's tumultuous week in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. That week has now come to an end. And among the many things we learned as we studied that account over four chapters, there was one overriding, clear message that the learned, sophisticated Jews in Jerusalem could not agree on Jesus' significance, on his message, on his identity, and on the source of his power. They were further confused by their leaders who would call Jesus an agent of Satan. So despite all their advantages, all their learnings, the heart of the nation missed their Messiah when he was sent to them. This same moment is captured in different ways in the other Gospels. Jesus declared that he would forsake the city, that they would be lost, and that the generation of Israel that knew him in that day would be lost with it. These were all pronouncements of woe against a generation that rejected their Messiah. John emphasizes less so that moment and more so the division that led up to it, that explains it. Meanwhile, Jesus continues to minister. And as we leave Jerusalem, we find him leaving to go back to Galilee. And Galilee is a backwater, low-rent, red-headed stepchild of Israel. If you're red-headed, please forgive the analogy. <laughs> and it's also home to Nazareth, the place from which nothing good ever comes, according to Nathaniel. And yet, that's the place where Jesus ministered with folks who received him with joy, embraced him, celebrated him as who he claimed to be. And the message there is clear as well, that he was found by those who were not seeking him, and it was the least of those who found him to shame the ones who had the most. And God continues to work in that way today. So as we leave John's four chapter examination of that Feast of Tabernacles, John ends with a simple footnote, which begins our study tonight, one that emphasizes this key message. He says in verse 40 of chapter 10, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. As I said, the contrast couldn't be clearer, could it, between Jerusalem and the Galilee. Into chapter 11, now verse 1, 
Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. As we find them now leaving the city of Jerusalem and Judea, they're headed north again, back to the Galilee, following the Feast of Tabernacles. And they've crossed through an area called Bethany, which puts them south of the Galilee, north of the Dead Sea, near the Jordan River Valley, where John the Baptist had been baptizing, as we heard earlier. He's near home of a family that Jesus apparently knows very well. And therefore, it would make some sense for Jesus to come and call upon that family again as he's passing on his way through to Jerusalem. The family, of course, is that of Mary, Martha and their brother, Lazarus. Now, you may remember the encounter Jesus has with Mary and Martha at an earlier moment in the Gospels, in Luke's Gospel. And John reminds us here of an earlier encounter in which Mary anointed Jesus with ointment. John is referring here to an event, this event of the anointing, which he doesn't capture at all in his Gospel which would clearly tell us that because he knew it existed in another gospel, he didn't even bother to record it. He just mentions it and expects his readers to have known what he's talking about, which is further proof that John was writing a gospel that was intended to fill in gaps that existed in other gospels. So the focus of the story is Lazarus. Lazarus lives in Bethany. It's a town, as I said, north of Jerusalem, on the way back to the Galilee. His name, Lazarus, it's a variation on a Jewish name, on a Hebrew name, Eleazar, which means God is my help or the Lord helps, and as we heard, Lazarus is sick and in need of God's help. And so the sisters send word to Jesus concerning their brother, and that's also understandable that they would expect Jesus maybe to come to the aid of the brother. They know Jesus, they know him as one who has power to heal, and they have a personal relationship with him, a close one. So that relationship, that past experience would naturally lead them to think he's compassionate, because he is, and that he would turn on his compassion and help. And Jesus is preparing to help them. He's just not planning to do it the way they expect. His sisters describe Lazarus to Jesus as the one Jesus loved. It sounds as if Jesus had a particularly close relationship with this Lazarus, and perhaps he did. Or perhaps what they mean is that Lazarus is one of Jesus' sheep, for we know he loves all of his sheep. Therefore, as his shepherd, Jesus would have an interest in caring for him. But in either case... At the hearing of the condition, Jesus reassures the woman. He says, this sickness will not end in death. Now, for some people, this causes a bit of concern because we know in the story he eventually does die. And so the concern here is, is Jesus speaking honestly or accurately? Well, notice Jesus does not say Lazarus won't die. Look carefully at the words. He says the sickness won't end in death, which means when all is said and done, Lazarus won't be dead. That does not mean he won't go through a period of death, though, of course, and And we know that's how the story proceeds, though they wouldn't have understood that, certainly. Going further, Jesus explains that this sickness has come upon Lazarus for the purpose of glorifying God and glorifying the Son of Man, Son of God. This is similar to what he mentions earlier in chapter 8. Remember when he meets the blind man and he was asked why the guy was blind? Was it because of his sin or his parents' sin? Remember that? And Jesus' answer is neither, but it's for the glory of God. So this trial in Lazarus' life is being instigated by God to offer an opportunity to glorify himself through his son. And I won't repeat the teaching we did last time when we looked at the blind man. Just to remind you of it, though, we learned back then that God has power as the creator over our bodies. And when we are sick, we are sick because he permits it. 
And the question is, are we using that opportunity to glorify him or are we having self-pity and resentment over that circumstance? And of course, it doesn't just relate to our own bodies, but to any trial that we might suffer. So here again, once more, we come face to face with that reality that God uses the lives of men and women to demonstrate his immutable power and character through how we suffer for his glory's sake. Simply put, Jesus cannot heal unless someone is sick. And Jesus can't bring life except in the midst of death. Ironically, it will be this particular miracle that ignites the leaders within Israel to directly pursue Jesus's own death, as we're going to see in the chapters that immediately follow. That truth explains why Jesus does what he does next. Verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If you didn't know the story, you'd have filled in the last part of that second sentence differently, wouldn't you? Because he loved her, he ran and he healed her. No, he didn't. As he learns that the sickness of Lazarus is putting him near death, he then chooses to stay where he is two days longer. Intentionally so, knowing that that delay ultimately leads to Lazarus's death from his sickness. But as John prefaced this statement, that delay was not for lack of concern on Jesus's part. It was a divine appointment that he would allow for the death to come after the delay. Then Jesus announces his intention to travel to Lazarus's home as the sisters request. Lazarus's home is in the area of Jerusalem. Jesus is north in the area of the Jordan River Valley in a place called Bethany. The family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus live in a little town also called Bethany, which is potentially confusing if you're reading the gospel without a, a map. But this Bethany is the one that's only about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So he leaves one Bethany to go to another Bethany. But more importantly, he is traveling back into Judea and on the outskirts of Jerusalem, a city where Jesus was under constant threat and just narrowly escaped, at least in human terms, an attack by the crowds from what he was saying in the week he was there for the Feast of Tabernacles. So naturally, at the prospect of returning to that place so soon thereafter, the disciples are going to express some concern over the idea that you're going to turn around and go right back. And so now we have this exchange between Jesus and the disciples and what follows reveals the disciples ignorance and their fears. Verses seven through 16. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So as he says, look, I'm going back to Judea. The disciples respond predictably. They point out the obvious. There are people in Jerusalem who are seeking to kill you. And they ask him, why would you want to go back there on a human level? That's a very sensible question. 
But it's because they're only thinking on a human level that we know they weren't thinking spiritually. And at the very least, they don't appreciate the Lord's power in the face of these threats because they honestly feel some concern about it. In fact, I think it's quite remarkable that these men are still worried for Jesus's safety, given all that they have seen thus far in the gospel. And just in what we've seen in John's gospel alone, they've seen Jesus still the wind and the waves. They saw him feed thousands of people miraculously. They saw him walk on water, cast out demons, make a blind man see. And yet they're concerned over Jesus being attacked by a crowd. This is now something that is insurmountable. I would argue, therefore, that it's highly unlikely that their objections are over concern for Jesus's safety. I think it's much more likely that they are concerned for their own safety as they follow Jesus back into this melee. And Jesus's answer, I think, reflects that insight. Using the metaphor of light to describe himself again. Remember, that's what he does all through the Gospel of John. He is the light. Jesus says, if you walk in the daytime, that is in the light, you won't stumble. Which is to say, so long as these disciples were following Christ wherever Christ goes, then they are doing his will by definition and not their own. And in doing so, they will not stumble, spiritually speaking. And in the Bible, stumbling always means to fail to come to pleasing God, to fail to walk according to God's commandments or to his wishes, to go outside his will. Notice Jesus isn't promising them they'll be safe from physical harm. He's not saying you'll be fine. He says you will not stumble, which is the priority of a Christian's life. Certainly all these disciples did sooner or later face brutality at the hands of their enemies, did they not? So there's no promise here for safety. But that wasn't the most important consideration. The most important concern was, are you obeying the will of God? Everything else is secondary. In fact, if a disciple of Christ ceases walking in the light, that is to say, using the metaphor, ceases to live according to Christ's commandments and priorities, we don't follow him, in other words, then, by definition, we are stumbling. And that fall, whatever it involves, will result in eternal consequences for the believer in terms of loss of reward, in terms of failing to please the master who bought them. And so Jesus is saying, as long as it is day, as long as you are in the light of the Son of God, walking with him, then everything is where it should be. Whatever loss we may suffer on earth for having followed Jesus will pale in comparison to the awards awaiting us for that obedience. But as soon as you get off that path and walk in darkness, you have the potential to stumble. He's not reassuring them against their fears. He's telling them that there are greater things to fear than the earthly concerns. So having corrected the disciples for their fear, born out of a degree of unbelief, the Lord explains why he is going to go to Judea. He says their friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and he's going to wake them. And of course, as I've already said, and as John points out, he's referring to sleep, but he's using it as a euphemism. Sleep was in that day a common euphemism for dying. Paul, you may know, uses this same euphemism on occasion in his letters to describe death and dying. Today, we have our own ways of referring to death in a subtle way. We say passed on or passed away or crossed over, resting in peace, kicked the bucket, bought the farm, um, pushing up the daisies. Some are more subtle than others, I'll grant you. But the disciples clearly missed the meaning of the euphemism. They thought he was speaking of literal sleep. That's what John says. So here's the question. If the euphemism is so common, then why didn't they understand it? I think it's too simple to say these guys were dense. They're not three-year-olds. They understand common parlance in their culture. They should have got this analogy, right? It's not that hard. 
I think the answer for why they missed it is because Jesus added another element to the euphemism that they weren't expecting and they couldn't explain. Jesus said Lazarus was sleeping, but then he added, and I'm going to go wake him up. Well, when people commonly use sleeping as a euphemism for death, no one ever speaks of waking up in that context. So I assume the disciples were following him. They were tracking with him on the sleep part. And then he got to the wake up part and they had to back off and say, well, he can't be talking about death anymore. What's he talking about? He must be talking about just sleep. The curveball there threw him off. So clearly he's referring here to the plan to raise Lazarus from the grave. We know that, which then also tells us why he waited two days, which was to ensure that Lazarus was good and dead. So when he raises him, then there'll be no doubt among the witnesses that this was a true miracle, that truly a dead man had been raised to life again. So in verse 12, it's clear the disciples are confused since they offered Jesus this helpful consultation. They say, you know, if he is asleep, well, then there's no need for you to go to his aid. He'll recover on his own. They use the word there for recover. They use the Greek word sozo, which literally means to be cured, to be restored. So they are referring to his illness. Now, I find this interesting because they're mixing their metaphors here. They're saying if Lazarus is just sleeping literally asleep, then you don't need to go down there and cure him because he'll eventually get better on his own. So they've changed the metaphor because they're trying to make sense of what it means to be woken up in that context. They say he'll get better on his own. That doesn't sound very compassionate, doesn't it? It reflects, again, they're thinking only of themselves, even if. Even if they didn't understand that it was about death and resurrection, you could still have found good reason to go visit someone who was sick. But that that wasn't going to happen for them. There's too much at risk. John explains in verse 13 that they had assumed all of this stuff. And then in verse 14, Jesus has to say to them plainly, he's dead. When he says Lazarus is dead, what you don't see in the text is the eye roll that took place immediately before that statement. I think that one verse, maybe it's just me, but I think that's one of the top ten funniest verses in the Bible, right up there with the woman whom you gave me. It just has this sense of complete ridiculousness in the moment. I can just see Jesus' look on his face. It's funny, but it's sad also, because their comments demonstrate that it never occurred to them that Jesus could raise someone from the dead. They never thought that is one of the possibilities for what Jesus was talking about. And so, as a result, Jesus adds what I think is a rebuke. He says, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal Lazarus so that now you can have the experience of seeing me raise him from the dead uh, because I need to use this situation to bolster what is clearly weak faith on your part. For few things are as dramatic and impressive as raising someone from the dead. It's up there in the top two, three. At this point, Thomas pipes up with encouraging words for the whole of the group. And this is the first mention of Thomas speaking in all the Gospels. This is the first time he ever says anything. His name is Jewish. It means double or twin. Didymus is a Greek version of the same, and it also means twin. So apparently he was one of twins. He's likely speaking for the disciples as a whole here. I don't think he was speaking out of character with the group. I think he's probably reflecting the group's opinion in some respect. And that is they're all focused on the danger. They're all acutely aware that they're about to go back into a very dangerous situation. They're scared. They don't want to show that they're scared. They want to align behind their their master, whom they think is about to do something very dumb. But, you know, like the guy in war that says we need to go take that hill and it's a guaranteed suicide mission. At some point, you just say, we'll go. And it's a cry of bravado intended to build up courage. But there's not a lot of confidence behind it. Right. So they say, let's go and die with Jesus. Not very confident, are you there, Thomas? We know that when things do get tough for these disciples at the crucifixion, they don't die with Jesus. They all run away. So his declaration of solidarity is self-serving at best. 
Following this call to arms, Jesus and his disciples returned to Bethany. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. As I said earlier, he's reached the Bethany near Jerusalem, about two miles out. And as they arrive, they hear that Lazarus has already been dead now for about four days. And this mention of four days is significant. Uh, Jewish rabbinical teaching of this time held that a person's spirit would linger around the dead body for three days or until decomposition set in. And only after that last bit of hope in resuscitation had departed, only then would the spirit finally go and any hope that the body could be brought back to life would be abandoned at that point. Now, of course, the teaching is completely false, but because it held some sway in the minds of the Jews in that time, it was important that that time period pass before the miracle take place. So the Lord constructed this miracle to eliminate the possibility that anyone might attempt to explain it away in this rabbinical fashion to suggest that the body naturally resuscitated because the spirit was still available and on and on. And as we're going to see, Lazarus's body was indeed already decomposing. So that would preclude that interpretation. Now, because this family is known in Jerusalem, they attract a large gathering for their wake. And as Jesus arrives in the area, Martha hears he's here and she goes out to greet him. But her sister Mary stays at home. Now, remember, this is the same Mary and Martha from Luke 10, the one in which you see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, Martha working in the kitchen. In Luke's account, Mary is that quiet sister and Martha is the leader in the home. It's interesting that John's portrayal here will reflect those same two typings or personalities matching Luke's description in that regard. So Mary remains in the home. Martha takes the initiative to go out. And she greets him, but she offers what might be called a gentle rebuke or at the very least a complaint to Jesus. She says, well, why didn't you come sooner to heal him? Essentially, she shows her faith in him in the very fact that she knows he could have healed. In fact, she says, you could ask now and I know that will happen. So there's certainly faith evident in her trust of Christ and in knowledge that he can heal and a direct line to the father, etc. And in response, Jesus promises Lazarus will rise again. Now, when Martha hears those words, she assumes that Jesus is offering those typical mourner condolences that you hear at funerals all the time. Right. We're we're always wanting to remind the person who's grieving over some lost loved one that they're going to see their loved one again one day in heaven. We're all going to be together, you know, assuming they're Christian, of course. While that statement is true, it wasn't addressing Martha's concern in the moment, which is if you'd just been here two days earlier, we wouldn't have to even have this conversation. Where were you when I needed you? is the implication. And Martha's eschatology is spot on. She's actually reflecting something she would have learned in Daniel 12, which is the place in the Old Testament where we hear that the saints will one day be resurrected into new bodies at the start of the kingdom. But Jesus isn't talking about the final day 
the resurrection that leads into the kingdom. He's talking about something much more timely than that, as you know. And his response begins with yet another of the I am statements that John's gospel is known for. I am the light, I am the bread, I am water, etc. Now in verse 25, he calls himself the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life, meaning he is the source of those things. Jesus is the one who provides eternal life. But now he says he is the one to affect the resurrection of every believer. The Bible teaches that our present body, the one you and I occupy now, will die because of sin. But a new, eternal, sinless, physical body is prepared for all those who have believed in Jesus as Messiah. And not only those who believe, but even those who do not believe. The difference being where you spend eternity in that body. When the time comes, Jesus says he will provide the new body so that even though our current physical body dies, nevertheless, we will live again, he says. But first, you must gain new spiritual life that comes by faith in Christ. So by faith, you gain your spiritual life, the eternal life that Jesus authors. And then in time at the resurrection in the last day, as Martha calls it, we will receive a new body, which itself prepares us for yet more life eternal in the physical sense. And that's why he says we are assured never to die. Having gone through that process once, it never comes again. So in a future state of physical existence, you can say we will never die. Paul says the same thing this way. In Romans 8, 29 through 31, he says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Notice in that short passage, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn among many brethren. So Jesus' spiritual life is shared with the many who are born again to be just like him. That's why he is the firstborn in that respect. Firstborn meaning he came into life as a man. And then, like him, many, many more will be born into his nature. All those the Father has predestined for this outcome are set on a course. And in all cases, as that unbroken chain reflects, in all cases, everyone who starts that process will finish it. Everyone who is in the beginning of it will be at the end of it. And the end of it was to be glorified, that is, to receive that new eternal body. Romans 8 teaches that there is an unbroken chain of salvation according to God's eternal purpose. And once you have begun it, you see the end of it. That's the assurance of your salvation. So Jesus is telling Martha, if you believe that I am who you say I am, you should also then know I am the source of these things that you're depending on. And as the source, I can dispense them at my will, according to the father's direction. He ends his statement by saying to Martha, do you believe this? Now, Martha's already affirmed her belief in resurrection. So there's no doubt about that. So Jesus is not asking Martha, do you believe in resurrection, period? Martha's said as much of her own words. He's asking Martha if she believes Jesus' statements concerning his identity again. Remember, the whole focus in John's gospel is who is Jesus? That's the matter we're dealing with at all times. Jesus asked Martha if she believes Jesus is the life and the resurrection, that he is the one who grants eternal life, that he is the one with the power to raise from the dead. Her response is the clearest profession of faith recorded in John's gospel and probably in all the gospels. 
She declares Jesus is Lord. She declares he is the Christ, which means Messiah. She declares he is the Son of God, which means Jesus is God himself. And lastly, she declares that he has come into the world, which is a reference to his having descended from heaven and to have been made man, to have entered the creation, having lived formally as God in heaven. Putting all this together, what she has done is confess a full and accurate understanding of Jesus' identity. Why does Jesus ask her to make such a profession of faith at this moment? Why did he ask the question? Was Martha's profession of faith a prerequisite? For Jesus to perform this miracle that he's about to perform? Well, that can't be the answer because Jesus has come to Judea expressly for the purpose of raising Lazarus. He said as much himself. In fact, he said the illness was intended to glorify the Son of God, right? There could be little doubt that this was God's plan from the very outset. So we, we have to conclude this moment of raising Lazarus does not turn on whether or not Martha answers this question properly. I see this moment as a part of a larger picture, one that's forming in the events of Lazarus's death and the resurrection. And this question is a part of it. Think about how it begins. The event begins with death. Lazarus has already died, just as every person is born into this world, sinful and spiritually dead, Paul says, dead in our sins. This story starts with a dead person. Next, the story moves to a confession of faith in Jesus as Lord, prompted by the question, Do you believe what I've confessed about myself? In the case of the story, it's Lazarus's death and Martha's confession. These are different people acting in different points in the process. But the point in this story is not being made with respect to a certain individual. This is not a story of one person's salvation or of one person's decision of faith. Rather, I believe that all of these actors come together to create a pattern. And the pattern that's being emphasized here is how anyone may pass from death to life by faith in Christ. We'll see them as we continue. So far, we've seen a death leading to the opportunity for faith and confession of faith and then a clear statement of Jesus's identity. So what follows next after the confession of faith continues down the road. Look in verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. So following Martha's declaration of faith in Jesus as Lord, she returns to her home. She finds her sister, Mary, who's at home still mourning, of course, for the loss of Lazarus. And then as Martha arrives, she tells her the teacher is here and he is calling for you. Now, the title teacher in this case is a personal way for these women to refer to Jesus, largely because that's how they've known him as a teacher in their home, in one case, at least, and in others, I'm sure. Now, she says Jesus is calling for you, but we don't see that in the text. You know, it's interesting. Jesus is not quoted here as saying, go get your sister Mary. Instead, Martha is the one who elects to relay the call, perhaps even to suggest it. That step is another piece in the pattern or in the puzzle that we're looking at here of moving from death to life. Once a person has made a confession of faith in Christ and they have the life and one day will have the resurrection in the meantime, They serve Christ by relaying his call to others. We introduce Jesus to others as the teacher, as the one who instructs us concerning himself through his word. We share the word of that teacher with others and we tell them the Lord is calling them through that instruction. And as Mary hears the news from Martha, what does she do? She immediately leaves the mourners and her home to come to where he is. As we saw earlier in this gospel, John 
showed people coming to know Jesus and then immediately running out and inviting others to come and see for themselves this man that they have encountered. And whenever that call was issued, they would respond by going to find Jesus. Metaphorically, this pattern describes the process of evangelism in the church's mission on earth. Wouldn't you agree? After you and I have found life in Christ, we await the resurrection. And then in the meantime, we call the world to know him. And in Mary's case, though we know she was already a believer in Jesus, her behavior matches this pattern. It's interesting that she leaves behind, for example, her home. And she leaves behind mourners who have on their minds the death of this man, Lazarus. In verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when a person is called to come to Jesus, that call requires that they be willing to leave behind that old way of life. You leave behind the world that mourns death. You know, Paul says that though we would mourn, we don't mourn as those without hope. We understand the very big difference between dying without a hope in resurrection and those who die with it. It should change everything about how we respond to death. We leave behind those who cannot see past the death of the body into things eternal. And then we adopt a new perspective and an outlook, not only on eternity, but also on the world we know now. We gain, as I like to say, eyes for eternity because of the faith we have in Christ. As we do that, as Mary comes to join Jesus in this case, the crowd thinks, in this case literally, that she's going to the tomb, which is their reason to follow, and they want to be supportive, and so they follow her. And not only are the sisters then with Jesus now, but also a crowd of many witnesses have appeared as a result. That offers us yet another little piece in this puzzle. For as we make our move from death to life, we create a testimony. Our very lives become witness to something we believe, and that will then inform others around us. Some will be intrigued by what we've done, what we've become, and what we now know and how we live. And as a result, they'll be drawn with us into a greater understanding of Jesus. Some will, at least. Because of Mary's departure, the crowd becomes witness to perhaps Jesus' greatest miracle while he lived on earth. This encounter with Jesus is going to persuade a good many of them to believe in him in this moment. And yet, at the same time, it's also going to give impetus to his enemies. There are enemies in this crowd even now, and it will cause them to want to take action against him, which then sets up the events leading to his crucifixion. Moving forward, verse 32. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So now the focus of the story changes very much so from the women, from even the brother to Jesus, to his compassionate response over Lazarus's circumstances. And as Mary approaches it's clear her distress came with her. She's said to be weeping, the crowd weeping with her. And then as we saw in Luke chapter 10, Mary once again places herself at Jesus's feet. In fact, in the next chapter, she will once again for a third time be at Jesus's feet. She's always sitting at Jesus's feet. She tells Jesus that had he been here, Lazarus would not have died. Virtually the same thing her sister had said earlier. 
My guess is the two have been saying that to each other for the last four days. While her words might be a rebuke of some sort, they also serve as her acknowledgement, as with her sister, her acknowledgement that Jesus has the power over life and death. But they also reveal that she can't see any reason for hope now that her brother is dead. This is the ultimate barrier. Death is a fundamental barrier that Jesus intends to cross in this moment and in so doing to prove himself in a way no other miracle could match. He's going to show them that death does not hold power over what Christ comes to do for us. Now, if you can imagine the scene in some way, you don't have to work too hard to picture it because anyone who's ever attended a funeral or a wake can appreciate the depth of emotion and the grieving that is often and almost always present in the moment of a funeral, at least for some, at least at moments along the way. And in the East and Eastern culture, it's a particularly prevalent expression that, in fact, if you don't show a lot of grieving and mourning at the sight of someone's death, it's actually a sign of disrespect. And it's a natural response. It's encouraged in the culture. And so it's typically there. And all of this turmoil, the result of one man's death, and that death, the result of one man's sin. And so as Jesus experiences the morning and he reflects on the cause for it all, John says Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. The Greek words describing his reaction are quite a bit stronger than the English words that my translation chose to use. For example, the Greek word for deeply moved is enebramasato, and that word literally means to be moved with outrage, to be angry. It's a strong negative emotion, not a sympathetic one. And the Greek word for troubled is eteraxin, which is equally strong in meaning emotional turmoil or to be stirred up. So you take these together and we see that Jesus's emotional state here is not one of joining in the morning that is taking place around him. Clearly, he has something else on his mind in light of the pattern that we've been seeing develop through this story. We must move our attention to a different issue, not on the sadness of the mourners and on Jesus's reaction of sadness with them, but rather Jesus reacting in anger and even in outrage, as the word suggests, at the prospect of the damage that sin does and the grief and turmoil that it inflicts upon God's creation. Jesus is looking upon a family he loves, one that is mourning for the loss of one of their brothers, and he understands better than any human being could the spiritual source of this misery started in the deceit of Satan initiated through the sin of Adam, and he is outraged and he contemplates the work that will have to be done to address this problem. That work, of course, being his own death and his own suffering on a cross. And he is stirred up and he is troubled by it, for he also knows that the events that he is about to precipitate are the direct cause of what will become his death on the cross, at least in human terms. Such is the compassion of our God, that he is moved by sin, to address it by his own death on our behalf. Death itself is not a part of God's perfect plan for creation. God is not the author of sin, but God did proclaim that death would be the right response to sin. So that when sin arrived, so death did as well. But knowing death would come, God moved to provide a solution in his son. So with that, Jesus asked to see the location of Lazarus's burial and they bring him to the place and John writes the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. This statement, Jesus wept, it's long been a source of great insight into his humanity, of course, but it's also been a source of great mystery. On the one hand, you see him 
compassionate, emotional, feeling people's pain in the face of death and all that we've said. But why did Jesus feel this way? Regardless of how much he loved Lazarus, he knew that Lazarus was about to be raised from the dead. And though he understood the mourner's pain and suffering, he knew he was about to give them immense joy in just a few moments when he raises their son back from the grave. So knowing those things, why would he be moved to such despair? This is where I think the common understanding of why he weeps is misdirected, because it makes no sense for someone who's about to deliver the good news that he is going to deliver to be so taken over by the bad news that he knows isn't going to be true any longer. Try to imagine yourself in the same situation. How would you have felt so much sadness knowing you were about to turn the whole thing around? You wouldn't have felt that emotion. You would have felt pity, but you wouldn't have felt that kind of sadness. We're left searching for that reason that Jesus would have stopped to cry at the tomb just moments before he performed the resurrection. So hearing that he wept needs to be understood not from the perspective of empathy, but from what he now understands death to be. Not only can he see the effect of sin and death in the world for those around him, but he is also contemplating his own death, which is only a short time away and the suffering that accompanies it. Perhaps mourning the countless numbers who die in their sins and never receive eternal life, who are casualties from all of this sin, and the knowledge of all of this for the sake of the sin of Adam. It's outrage and it's compassion and it's being stirred up And I believe it is a far, far greater concern than the temporary passing of one man. Others in the crowd, though, simply think of it as him being compassionate for his friend. But then there are those who say this is just an indictment of his power. I mean, if he's that powerful and he can take blind people and make them see, well, then couldn't he have healed this man? Now, the question's reasonable, but it reflects a doubting and critical perspective. There are enemies of Jesus present here in this moment. And as you're going to see in the next chapter, they quickly seize upon what comes out of this moment and try to use it against Jesus. Jesus responds by moving directly to the miracle. This is the heart of what he does. Verses 38 through 44. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Once again, John describes Jesus as being moved without rage as he approaches the tomb. The tomb here had a stone rolled over it, which immediately reminds us of another tomb mentioned in the Gospels. Jesus' own tomb, as you know, is described in this way. That detail may explain why Jesus is so internally filled with anger and turmoil. Here again, it's such a reminder of something that he knows is coming very shortly. If you knew the type of burial you were going to experience and the type of death you were going to suffer, and you knew that you were enduring this agony because of another man's mistake, that is sin, wouldn't you be feeling a little bit of mixture of anger along with other emotions? Wouldn't you have a little outrage at the prospect of all of this? Wouldn't you grieve a little at the sight of a tomb that looks just like the one you know your body's going to occupy someday soon? It would seem reasonable that he's looking ahead to bigger things again. Next, he orders that the stone be removed. 
But Martha, the one who had earlier professed all this belief in resurrection and in his identity, etc., she's the one who points out that the body's decomposing and therefore, you know, it's not going to be such a great thing if we roll that stone aside, Jesus. She thought she understood the promise of resurrection, or at least she wasn't prepared to understand it in the immediate moment that Jesus spoke the words. Here again, even those of faith have a blindness to how far God's power goes. Jesus rebukes her gently, reminding her those who have faith in Christ should expect to see the glory of God. Not only at the resurrection on the last day, but even as God works in creation by bringing glory to himself. So that on this day, Mary and Martha and the crowd would see a resurrection take place. And then in a day to come, Mary will arrive at another tomb where the stone, having been rolled back overnight, and in generations to come, many corpses will be raised, spiritually speaking, in the new birth of faith. Resurrection happens around us all the time, at least in one sense or another. And one time to come, it will happen to all of us in its fullness. So the people do what they're told. They remove it. I have to think they don't know quite what to expect when they remove it. This whole thing is getting a little weird about this point. And Jesus then stops to pray a sincere prayer, but then one that we know is also done for public effect. And notice the prayer is not a prayer of intercession and it's not even a prayer of petition. It's a prayer of thanks to the father that he heard Jesus, that the father has heard him. Now, what had the father heard? Well, the only thing we can conclude is that the father heard an earlier request not recorded in which Jesus asked the father to give him the power to go raise Lazarus to do this work. And whatever the son asks of the father, he will receive for the son is always working in the will of the father. Jesus asked this. He received permission to go do it. And now as he is preparing to act, he announces publicly through this prayer that his work is the result of the father's will, that everything is happening is happening because the father wanted it to happen. And it was something the Father granted. Why is he doing this? He's careful to make this prayer public for the benefit of the people so that what they see happen is proof to them that Jesus does, in fact, work on behalf of the Father, that the two are one. Based on this example, we know we will be heard by Christ and that Christ's requests will then, in turn, be heard by the Father. And so if you are praying in the Father's will, you will be heard. John says in his first letter, 1 John 5.14, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Secondly, we know that from elsewhere in the Gospels, that our public prayers must not be for the purpose of drawing attention to ourselves as unbelievers are prone to doing. Jesus says in Matthew 6.7, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. The word supposed there is the emphasis, right? They think they're being heard when they're not. But there is a benefit in public prayer. You can pray before others to make clear what's in your heart and in so doing become a testimony to those who are in earshot. You can make the truth all the more clear to them. That's one of the main purposes in prayer. Not only is it to move your heart, but it's also to influence others to become, as I like to say, a billboard for God in advance of his work. Jesus said the Father already knew that Jesus understood the Father heard him. He knew that he knew that he knew. But it still nevertheless pleased the Father that Jesus would announce this publicly. So your public prayer life cannot be for your own sake. That doesn't mean that public prayers are to be avoided. They have a good purpose in how they can bolster the faith of others when they're done with the right heart. Then finally, Jesus cries out with that loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It has been said on more than one occasion that had Jesus not specified the name Lazarus before his command, then all the dead would have been raised in that moment. Such is the power of Christ's words to accomplish God's purpose. 
Only the word of God was required to raise the dead body from the grave. And so it will be on the day of our own resurrection, according to Paul, when new bodies are raised by the shout of the Lord. First Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the moment of the resurrection of the church. And so it was for Lazarus. We're told the man who had died came walking out of the tomb, still wrapped in his bandages. You know, the modern horror figure of the mummy is patterned directly off the story of of Lazarus. The Jewish rite of burial involved the loose wrapping of the body, not the tight one that you're familiar with in Egypt, but a much looser one, just enough to hold the embalming spices next to the body and nothing more. Therefore, it was not hard to see Lazarus walking, even though he was still wrapped. Nevertheless, it's obviously a miracle that the guy is walking out of the tomb. And I can only imagine the reaction of the crowd. Imagine that feeling of a death having taken place. And that's a sudden feeling of loss with no hope for return, at least not in the near term. All of that emotion now turned on its head when you see the person that you thought you'd lost. Raising men from the grave is evident actually throughout the Bible at different points in time. And this isn't even the first. There are occasions at least twice in the Old Testament, two prophets who raise dead bodies to life again, Elijah. And Elisha, Elijah does it in 1 Kings 17. Elisha does it in 2 Kings 4. Both of those events involve the prophets praying and then laying on top of the body they're raising. In both cases, it's a young boy of a widow. They lay on top of the boy ostensibly to warm it up, to prayer in a sense that God is going to work through them. And in all their cases, a word is not enough. It's not enough that they just say, rise and be up. They go through this ritual. They had to work at it, if you will, all the while expecting God to perform the miracle, which he did. The Lord, on the other hand, in the cases where he raises dead bodies, he does it once earlier in Luke's gospel to another widow's young son, also in the same place that Elijah did his miracle. And now again here with Lazarus, in both cases, the Lord uses only his word. He just speaks a word. That's the essential difference between the two examples. In the earlier cases, the prophets validated the truth of their word by the power of their works. But in this case, Jesus validates the truth of his claims by the power of his word. And in both cases, there's no more powerful display than raising a person from the dead. Later, the Bible records the apostles raising men from the dead and even speaks of future times when that miracle is going to be done again in advance of the end. And even in the meantime, there are in some places of the world credible claims that God is continuing to show these powers through Signs on rare occasions through men who can raise others from the dead. But when those happen, if they happen, they are going to be limited and localized to places where the word of truth is only now penetrating the culture. And so a display of this sort is helpful to validating the truth of God's word as it was in the early church. Once the word is established, these signs go away as a general rule. Finally, let's consider what actually happened from Lazarus's point of view for a moment. His body was certainly dead. That much is obvious. That's the whole point. Which means his spirit was no longer occupying his body. Without a body to occupy, the spirit of a man must travel to a home God has prepared for it, one way or another. And at this point in human history, the Lord had all spirits, whether those of a saint or those of an unbeliever, held in a place called Sheol, as described in Luke 16. Sheol was a place that had two parts, a part called Abraham's bosom, euphemistically, And then a part called Hades, which we translate hell. Abraham's bosom was a place of comfort, of the holding of saints, the souls of those in the Old Testament who died in faith, 
but yet could not enter the throne room of God because there had not yet been a sacrifice made for their sin, and therefore they could not yet enter into God's presence. So they awaited the coming of the Messiah, just as all men did. But they did so in comfort. While in Hades, on the other side, was a place of torment, a place of the holding of souls of unbelievers, that continues on today. Given Jesus' love for Lazarus, we can safely assume that Lazarus was a believer, just like his sisters, and as so, we might assume then that his soul, when it left his body, was moved into Abraham's bosom, at least temporarily for four days. While he was there, we might wonder what he learned. What was he told? Did he retain memories of that place after he was resurrected? More importantly, what did he think when he found himself resurrected, back in his old body, back on earth again? Did he know he was coming back? Was he surprised at that outcome? When he learned of Jesus' plan, was he disappointed? Was he a little upset that he had to come back? Was he particularly upset when he learned he had to die again? I wish I had answers to these questions. One day we will. Maybe the best question and the one we'll end on tonight. How did this experience change his view of life and death for the years that he had on earth? The story of Lazarus ends here, but I wonder how much differently he chose to live the day after this occurred than he was living before it occurred. That's the final pattern in our comparison, the one that we've been looking at here, moving from life to death. Our faith in Christ assures us that someday we will be raised to new life, to a new body, to a new world, to a new family. Lazarus was given a preview of that new world. I think it would have changed him. I think it would have changed him profoundly. I mean, if people can have false signs and wonders of life after death given to them by hallucinations or the enemy and have that change their life, how much more so should we expect a true experience of life after death to have transformed him, at least for the time he had left on earth? But friends, in a very real way, we've received a similar preview. His came in the form of a four-day excursion to Sheol. Ours comes in the form of God's word, which is an even more powerful personal revelation of what is to happen. The question is, are we allowing that revelation of what will be in eternity to inform and change our walk on earth and to align it in purpose with our reason for even being here at all? Notice as Jesus ends in verse 44, he says to them, unbind him and let him go. As Paul would say, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have been set free from sin to serve Christ. That's the picture, the last piece of the puzzle, Lazarus being unbound, unchained, as it were, even though he still lived on earth for a time. And now with an evidence of what is to come, hopefully having changed him to serve God with all the more passion. I'm ending the story that way because I get to put an ending on this story. There isn't one given. And that's the one I assume must have happened. So we have the same chance to end our story the same way. You know what you know. Does it change how you live? It certainly should, right? Let's go to Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for this pattern, for the miracle of him being raised, for Jesus' words and for the example it sets for each of us. And thank you, Father, that while we still count today today, while we still have a time to serve you, that we have opportunity to know better how to do it. That you were gracious enough, Father, to not leave us in our ignorance. First and foremost, not in the ignorance to the gospel, but now even not in ignorance to the importance of how we serve you and to the eternity that awaits and that a new body will soon be ours one day. Let us take every opportunity, Father, to make our life that sacrifice that you ask, our spiritual service of worship, so that we will not be conformed to this world, but to you and to your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.